I personally think there's going to be a lot of these people that are just never going to change their mind. I think instead of trying to push back, which has thus far not worked, let's just look at what is going on in their arteries. Personally, I think it's crazy. You don't care that your LDL cholesterol is 400, 500, 600. These are crazy levels. They won't even go see doctors because they don't want to hear it. There's all these people following this type of diet. These people are saying they're feeling great. You know, you're on these forums and whatever. Oh, whatever happened to Bob? He doesn't post anymore. The bastard dropped dead, you know, type of thing. But we don't know that. He's just gone. I think it's unethical to not watch what's going on in their art. I think it's unethical to not monitor them at least. And we should do it in a way that's at least not these little anecdotes. That's Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, and this is The Proof Podcast. Hello, my friends. I hope that you've been keeping well, are enjoying life and staying happy and healthy. If this is by chance the first time that you've stumbled across this show, welcome. We are delighted to have you join us. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. I'm back down under now in Oz. Had a great time in the United States with family and friends. All in all, a really productive and memorable trip. I'll save some of the stories for another time. In the interest of keeping this introduction as short as possible, let me jump straight into telling you about today's episode. I recently became interested in some claims being made by a fragment within what many would call the low-carb community about high cholesterol, particularly LDL cholesterol or ApoB-containing lipoproteins, all of which we will unpack in this episode not necessarily raising one's risk of coronary heart disease, at least not in a particular context whereby enormous elevations in LDL cholesterol are induced by dietary changes. As you know, I am interested in science, deeply interested in fact, and particularly interested in anything related to heart disease. It's the number one killer globally and having seen my dad have a heart attack, is something I'm deeply curious about. And central to this curiosity means hearing people out who perhaps have different views, being open-minded. So while there are many parts to this claim that do not make any sense to me at all, I am still interested in exploring it. This idea or hypothesis is very much being spearheaded by an engineer called Dave Feldman. Dave is very active on Twitter. He's developed a large community of followers. I assume mostly people who follow low-carb diets and have elevated LDL cholesterol as a result. Of course, this has been met with a fair degree of criticism. Many people, myself included, take issue with people being led to believe that they are somehow an exception to the rule that higher LDL cholesterol means higher risk of having a heart attack. I've had several discussions with Dave, both on Twitter and on the phone, and while I do not share all of his views, I think it is important to state that I do appreciate that he is trying to move science forward. He is currently putting together a study looking at individuals following a low-carb, usually animal-based diet, 
with sky-high LDL cholesterol that will measure atherosclerosis at baseline and monitor progression over time. While it's not a perfect study, it is a start. So that's the background context and impetus for today's conversation with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, an MD that specializes in lipids who is involved in this study. We talk about Dave's hypothesis, the study design, and where he sits on what has developed into quite a large debate. It is worth noting this is a fairly large deep dive. But that said, even though at times it may seem a little complex, if you are interested in cholesterol, heart disease, low-carb diets, etc., then I do think you will get a lot out of it. And I'll do my best to summarize things in the outro so no matter what, you walk away with the most important takeaways in a clear and concise manner before we wrap things up. Please enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line 
with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, welcome to the show. It's a, a long time coming. Great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks a lot, COVID. We've been trying to do this for, <laughs> I think, a couple of years now. So yeah. better late than never. That's right. Now, given it is your first time on the show, let's kick things off with your background. What kind of physician are you and, and what inspired you to pursue a career in medicine? I'm basically a meme doctor, so I, <laughs> I specialize in me. No, I, so um, my my elevator pitch is that uh, successful athlete. When I was younger, I used nutrition and exercise science to get good at sports. I uh, wasn't naturally as good maybe as my brother, who is four years older than I am. Uh, grew up in an academic-minded family. Mom was a school teacher. My dad was a biology and uh, teacher in high school, wrestling coach. And so um, got good at sports, state champ, wrestler, all state football, all due to what I would say, hard work and just focusing on the science, probably more so the hard way. If you work hard and you get anywhere near close, you're going to do You're going to do a good job in high school. was able to go to college or university for wherever you're listening to. We call it college over here. Did really well in sports there, too had a scholarship, but uh, wanted to become a physician, went to medical school with the idea of maybe I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I knew that wasn't for me, the, it just the surgery and just kind of working with bones. I don't know. I just, it didn't appeal to me. So I thought about endocrinology, which was really interesting to me. And I love endocrine, but um, I was convinced not to do that because that's more end stage disease. I wanted to reach people before they, in that kind of subclinical range of disease. So I was convinced to do family medicine, which is the broadest of all over here in the States. I don't know how it is in Australia and in, um, in the UK, it's considered a GP here. GPs, we don't call them GPs because a GP would be like if you just did one year. So family medicine's own specialty. It's very broad. You go through pediatrics all the way up to geriatrics, internal medicine, even women's health, uh, OBGYN, that type of thing. So I did that. And I don't know if it was the right choice or not. It doesn't really matter because then I specialized even further into obesity medicine and then lipidology, which is the the study of like uh, lipids, cholesterol, sterols, and and triglycerides and metabolism. So um, I now I'm really focused on lifestyle as medicine and kind of if there were a specialty, they've thought about creating this idea of a cardiometabolic specialist, uh, medicine specialist, which is combining cardiology, preventive cardiology with endocrinology and not the, the more, I don't want to say esoteric, but some, the stuff that has nothing to do with cardiometabolic health. So f- for example, like electrophysiology in cardiology and let's say uh, pituitary or bone disorders in endocrine. So it's more of like diabetology and preventive uh, cardiology and, and obesity, it, it all plays together. So I, I, if I could call myself anything, which it doesn't exist yet, is a cardiometabolic specialist. But for now, it's officially obesity, obesity medicine and lipidology um, medicine specialist. So today uh, you're, you're practicing. What kind of patients do you typically see? 
Yeah. I, I, so because of my social media, I'm all in the cloud now. I was able to get out of the clinic, use technology, get out of the clinic. One of the first kind of early adopters before COVID and all this stuff is purely all telemedicine. So I would get anywhere from super into medical nutrition stuff like biohackers, which personally, I don't, it's not my cup of tea, but I'd get a lot of those people all the way up to the, the person with end stage, you know, diet type two diabetes, um, and, and other endocrinopathies and uh, cardiovascular disease patients trying to keep them from dying basically. And then other people in between where I'm trying to prevent those things from occurring. So, um, all, all over the place, but it, it's, I try, I try to focus mostly on that, what I'd say that cardio metabolic patient, not the super athletes. Like I was in college, it doesn't really float my boat. Sure. So we're going to talk a lot today about lipids, no doubt. I'm curious why the, the interest in lipids at your end? Yeah, it's really this idea of, of cardio metabolic health. What, what, what do we do to keep people having both a long life and a high quality of life throughout that life uh, span. So uh, lipids, as we'll talk today, ApoB-containing lipoproteins are are the initiating causal factor in cardiovascular disease. And um, dyslipidemia in general, looking at that in terms of insulin resistance is also interesting. You know, a lot of people think that, oh, lipidologists, cardiologists only care about LDL, but no one care about all ApoB-containing lipoproteins and the metabolism of it all and the causal reasons for it all. So that specifically, along with obesity and insulin resistance and uh, like diabetology or whatever and exercise and nutrition, kind of make up that cardiometabolic specialty. And so preventing cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes is like my focus. So lipids are very important for that. The main reasons I wanted to do this episode with you is to introduce some new terms that we haven't really spoken about on this show so much, such as ApoB uh, containing lipoproteins to also clarify the the major things about cholesterol and heart disease that are well-established in the scientific literature. And then also why there are certain people challenging what's considered, I guess, settled science and whether or not there is any validity to their claims. Of course, central to that last point is a, a growing idea, I guess, within the low-carb community that high cholesterol is not a problem within a particular context. So perhaps to kind of make sense of, of all of that, why don't we first start by defining some terms that are no doubt going to come up along the way. What are lipoproteins? Where are they manufactured? And, and what is their primary role in the body? Yeah. So, you know, when somebody says they have high cholesterol, what they're saying is that they have a lot of cholesterol found in the blood, but they're carried by in these lipoproteins. So uh, cholesterol is hydrophobic. You know, you put oil in in water and you kind of see them separate. So how do you get them transported through the blood with no problem? You need to put them on these little proteins. You connect the lipid with an apolipoprotein, you make a lipoprotein. And so basically that allows transportation of cholesterol and triglycerides, uh, phospholipids, these types of things are able to travel through the blood to get to wherever they need to go. And so that, that's, that's really 
something that people really don't understand. And I don't even know if they need to understand that, um, that level of depth, but for this discussion, they probably should understand that. So when you eat any types of foods, it you know, goes into our mouth, goes down our esophagus, stomach, intestines, and that's where these lipids, not only triglycerides, but also cholesterol, are absorbed. And so the actually first place that gets manufactured, well, the first place we're going to talk about anyway, so our intestines actually create these uh, lipoproteins. So the first one that we can talk about are these chylomicrons. There's a few different mechanisms uh, or steps, but we kind of skipped that. But you, you absorb the, the cholesterol, you can absorb the, the fatty acids and package it all up onto something called a chylomicron. It actually goes into our lymph system and then gets dumped out into our, our bloodstream to, to, to go through um, and get to our different tissues. And that's the first lipoprotein uh, that we're going to discuss. And that's actually one of these ApoB-containing lipoproteins, this color micron. It's huge, though. It's huge. It's, a big, it's the biggest lipoprotein that we'll talk about. Now, the ApoB that's on that protein that gets packaged together with the cholesterol and triglycerides and all that, it's actually an ApoB48. There's two different types of ApoB. Uh, ApoB48, they call it the truncated version, versus an ApoB100, which we'll discuss uh, is, is made in the liver um, later. So anyway, you package all this cholesterol and you triglycerides together, it gets in this chylomicron, it floats through, goes to our different tissues that need to take up some of the uh, triglycerides and, and cholesterol and that type of thing. It becomes what's, after it gets, you know, some of those triglycerides get cleaved off, it then can go to the liver and be recycled. And that's called a chylomicron remnant. At least that's a simplistic version. There's all sorts of other things that can be going on, but that's the gist of it. So that, that thing goes and gets recycled in the liver, and that's called the exogenous pathway, although there will be some people that, that might argue with those, with those terms. But we call it exogenous because it's what we eat from the outside. We eat these things that contain cholesterol, that uh, contain fats or triglycerides, get broken down in fatty acids, and then that's how, that's how they get into our body and metabolized. But then there's this endogenous process where it's our liver can actually create these ApoB-containing lipoproteins. And it starts with a very low-density lipoprotein called uh, VLDL, very low-density lipoprotein. Same thing, it gets packaged up, triglycerides, cholesterol, and these uh, apolipoproteins, and then can travel through the blood as, as needed for whatever tissues for energy. Uh, and then it gets broken down, goes down to an uh, intermediate density lipoprotein as it gets broken down from our tissues that are requiring uh, a substrate of some sort. Gets broken down from there, from an IDL, an intermediate density lipoprotein, down to a low density lipoprotein. All of these, all of these not only the VLDL, uh, IDL and LDL, but also the chylomicron remnants. The chylomicrons are huge, so we won't count those, but all of these things are small enough to uh, get through our arteries and cause atherosclerosis. So from a causal standpoint, we think about all these things together. The thing is, in, in, normal, in normal physiology, people tend to break down those things and, and recycle them so quickly that in pretty much everybody, we care a lot about these, these LDL particles. But there are people with insulin resistance who will have these what we call remnant particles, where the, we, we also look at those. So people that don't necessarily recycle 
um, those particles after they've been going through towards the tissues. And we can talk about that a little bit later. So, so that, that's called the endogenous pathway of, of lipoprotein and cholesterol. I think that's a really important point because I think there might be a bit of a misunderstanding about uh, LDL cholesterol in particular, but also the, these other ApoB containing lipoproteins. What you've just described speaks to their functional role in the body and the purpose of them. So there is an actual reason why we have them, right? And and I think it's critical to differentiate between what is healthy and then what takes place when we see atherosclerosis, the pathophysiology of that. What is it that changes with regards to these ApoB-containing lipoproteins that would cause them to go into the artery wall, be retained, and then start to build up? Yeah, so when we look at like primates, for example, and, and kind of these hunter-gatherer populations and babies, although it, you know, I've, I've had arguments because people are like, well, babies don't have high cholesterol when they're, when they're out of the womb, so like we should always have that. Well, the babies have all sorts of different things about their blood and vital signs that are much different than adults. So I, I think that's not the most logical argument, but when you put it together with some of these other populations and primates and everything, we used to not have high levels of LDL cholesterol in our, in our, uh, or LDL particles or any of these ApoB containing particles, unless there was some genetic issue back way back when, when we were just hunter gatherers, basically, we weren't just going out and putting sticks of butter in our coffee, you know, <laughs> and that's what, that's why I always laugh about, uh, these, these, um, you know, paleo folks are like, oh, I got to eat paleo. I'm like, paleo, people did not get sticks of butter and, and coconut oil and putting it in and, and uh, medium chain triglycerides and putting it into their coffee that uh, are specially roasted. So anyway, back then we had a very, pretty low level. So right now population normal levels are anywhere from, you know, they look like 100 milligrams per deciliter up to, uh, uh, you know, like even 130s, 140s. So one millimole was like was like normal for LDL levels back then, around forty. You, 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 that doesn't people with that level pretty much don't have atherosclerosis. So then you start bumping it up to like that 100, 130, which you know it's not horrible. It's not it's not horrible. It's it's in a healthy person, it's not bad. But you're still going to see atherosclerosis in the, in in a, in a subset of those uh, people, especially with other diseases. So what happens is that you start getting up above this threshold. You have other conditions that accelerate the ApoB containing LDL particles or other ApoB containing particles going through your arteries and becoming retained. You actually accelerate the process when you have other uh, conditions, such as insulin resistance or any other inflammatory type of condition. So yeah, so it's it's basically people were healthier back then. Obviously, all sorts of different types of diseases and everything. But from a cardiometabolic standpoint, people tended to be healthy back then. So um, with lower levels of, of these ApoB-containing lipoproteins. I want to come back to this point when we consider the risk of cardiovascular disease a little bit later and whether just having a high ApoB-containing lipoproteins is sufficient enough or if you also require a kind of perfect storm. Let's park that for uh, one second here. Uh, I think we should just really clarify 
the difference between ApoB and LDL cholesterol and why sometimes they're kind of used interchangeably. Uh, again, this is probably the first time on this show where ApoB is being used. And, and of course, I understand it's a, it's a better marker and you've, you've kind of described why, but uh, can you go into that a little bit more and also why uh, LDL cholesterol is often what is measured at your, uh, when you go and do a blood test to look at your sort of risk of uh, atherosclerosis as opposed to ApoB? Yeah, it's a good question. Of I, you know, the history is kind of interesting, but the cholesterol is contained on these lipoproteins, right? The, the, we, so we measure the cholesterol contained in all the lipoproteins, and then through certain equations, there's different equations now, you can actually spit out the LDL cholesterol level. And what they've, they've pretty much used that for a long time now uh, in terms of risk, because they thought that was the causal issue. But as we look further and further, it's not just the cholesterol. The cholesterol is important, but it's the actual particle itself that can become retained in the wall and start this cascade of atherosclerosis. So some people could actually have higher levels of cholesterol and fewer actual particles, so maybe not as big of a risk, where some people could have lower levels of cholesterol. It looks kind of normal, but they can have a ton of these particles. We call that discordance. We're measuring the cholesterol because we, it's kind of a surrogate marker or an estimating marker of the, of the particles. Why not just measure the particles themselves? Well, there's, you know, Alan Snyderman has written, there's, there's people that have written all these uh, papers of why not. And I think it's come time that we're probably going to, but the particles are what we probably want to know. They predict risk of cardiovascular disease better than actually measuring the cholesterol contained on the particles. If the particles are truly what's causing the atherosclerosis, then we should just measure the particles themselves. And so there's one molecule of, of ApoB, apolipoprotein B, per particle. And so we can just measure that. We can even measure LDL particles, but uh, ApoB is pretty much sufficient itself. There is another marker that's probably better than LDL cholesterol, and that's non-HDL cholesterol. And the reason is, is because as we talked about before, there's other ApoB-containing particles beyond LDL that can also become retained in the LDL wall. So why not account for other things that aren't LDL? So like the VLDL remnants, the, the IDLs, and all these other things that can also become retained in the wall. And it turns out, so measuring that, you just get a total cholesterol and you subtract the HDL cholesterol because HDL particles don't actually contain ApoB. So those don't cause atherosclerosis. So you remove the cholesterol contained on, on, on the HDL, and then you get this non-HDL cholesterol. And it turns out that's a better predictor of cardiovascular disease than just LDL cholesterol. And then, you know, there's some studies going back and forth whether ApoB is better than non-HDL. But in general, when we measure just ApoB, it even does a better job than non-HDL cholesterol. So really, it's just, it's just it's an estimation. When we're measuring the cholesterol, we're trying to estimate how many particles, and it's the particles that actually get caught in the wall of your arteries. So that's that's the gist of it. So LDL cholesterol is a pretty good surrogate marker, but if you're going in to get your standard blood test done, non-HDL will be better again. And if your doctor can order ApoB, is that a test worth requesting? I personally would. I mean, at this point, I don't know how much it costs over... <laughs> 
across the pond and everything. But here I can get it pretty cheap to the point where I tend to always get it. Now, I will say, if you don't have insulin resistance, it's usually not an issue. Like, so we care about these people that have discordance, right? So the people with insulin resistance have a discordance. Discordance means the predicted amount of particles you have for the amount of cholesterol is different. So you either have, so you have this level of LDL cholesterol, you assume you're going to have this many particles from it, but instead you have this much LDL cholesterol and you have a lot more particles. And so you have fewer amounts of cholesterol per particle, but there's more particles to get into your blood. So, so the nine HDL does a better job at, at capturing. It's not as, it doesn't matter as much, but there are people like you see, if someone has like a little bit of an increased waist circumference, um, maybe their, tri- their triglycerides are, you know, getting above 100 and their HDL is starting to uh, drop down into the 40s. And that's kind of, it's a sign of, of insulin resistance. And then you check their, their cholesterol levels and you're like, well, your LDL looks okay and everything. Your glucose looks okay. I think you're fine. But actually their APOB is, is actually higher. We didn't test it because you just get the standard lipid panel. Now the non-HDL will be more, it should be more concordant uh, with that APOB level. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that APOB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. 
After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. I'm going to ask you a question here and there's a potential to go into the weeds, but um, let's see where we go. So if I'm, if I'm tracking along correctly here, what you're saying is you can have two people with the same LDL cholesterol levels, but depending on how much cholesterol is held within each particle, one person may have more LDL particles holding less cholesterol compared to the other person who has less LDL particles, they're bigger holding more cholesterol. Now, my understanding is that regardless of the density of those LDL particles, they're all still atherogenic and still could cross over into the artery wall and get stuck. So my logic here is, is saying that they would still have the same potential for the amount of total cholesterol that could get stuck in the wall, right, and retained in the wall. So I'm wondering why the risk would be different between those two. Yeah, it's so you're saying, so if someone has fewer particles, but more cholesterol on each particle, someone else has more particles, but less cholesterol on each. It should track more to the total particle because the concentration of particles uh, is, is, a, is a big driver. Now, if someone, here's what you're really, here's, here's really where you want to know. If somebody has the same amount of particles, but one person has more cholesterol on one, and less cholesterol on the other, but they have the same amount of particles. That's what you're, that's, I think that's what you're getting towards and which one would be higher risk. Well, yeah, technically they both have the same amount of particles. So, and they're both able to be retained in the walls. I don't, we don't have a good answer on this because yes, there is probably something to uh, the, the size. Some people think that these smaller LDL particles with, uh, with, not much triglyceride on each of them and are, are more atherogenic uh, due to XYZ. Some people think that the larger ones, because when they become a retained, you'll be delivering more cholesterol in, into the artery lining. Um, I don't think we have a, a great answer for that. I would look more at the context of everything else, and that's kind of what we're going to get into. So if somebody if somebody has smaller uh you know, denser or whatever you want to say, smaller LEO particles. Those are the type of people that also have insulin resistance. Those are the type of people who are going to have a predisposition to retaining more of those LDL particles or ApoB-containing particles regardless because the lining, that endothelium in, in the uh, arteries is going to be more dysfunctional and it's going to allow more particles to come through and there's going to be a more of an inflammatory uh, immune system reaction to retain and and gobble up those uh, those LDL particles. So I think I it's hard to test for that. We've I've had Twitter discussions of how we'd even how how would you even do a, do an RCT to figure that out? I'm not actually sure yet. Uh, we don't have any drugs that can target one way or another. So I, I would say that either way, they're both they both are atherogenic, and I would focus on on all risk factors in those cases. Sure, okay, I think that makes sense. So particle number being most important here. Um, what 
What evidence do you normally speak to when someone says, what proof do you have that atherosclerosis is actually caused by raised ApoB-containing lipoproteins? Yeah, so this kind of goes back into epidemiology first. It's not perfect. Uh, as, as we've had all these discussions on Twitter, it's not perfect because we're, we're going to see some people living pretty long, healthy lives with relatively higher levels of cholesterol, LDL cholesterol included. And we're going to see some people who die early and have cardiovascular disease with lower levels, what we consider lower levels anyway. It's like, what's going on? But still in epidemiology, we see this trend for higher levels um, um, meaning higher level, higher levels of ApoB or LDL cholesterol and higher levels of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And it includes heart disease and you know, strokes and all these different things. But epidemiology can be confounded. There can be other reasons for why your levels change. There's all sorts of different biases that, that occur. And, and, and those studies aren't perfect, but they give us a nice little clue of what's going on. So then the next thing you can do is something called... Uh, you know, a randomized controlled trial. And this is where we start seeing the, um, the evidence really come out. So we take two groups and we give them a drug, two groups that are similar. And we give one group a placebo that has nothing that changes their cholesterol, LDL cholesterol. And we give them another, another group, we give them, you can give them a statin. And these things reduce the synthesis of cholesterol in your liver, which actually the, the, the mechanism is it increases the recycling of the LDL particles uh, in your blood. So then this other group gets very you know, lower levels of LDL cholesterol, and we watch them for whatever, five years or however long, and we see what happens to them and to the placebo group. And we can see that the people that are given the statins have lower rates of cardiovascular disease or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events and whatever else you're like okay now the naysayers will say well wait it could be something other than the cholesterol that these statins are are helping with they're anti-inflammatory there's something else it's not the cholesterol the cholesterol is just the bystander okay now that's interesting um even though like when we look at the studies and we look at look at the graphs and, and look at how much they reduce they all fall in line but it's possible. It's possible that there's some other inflammatory pleiotropic effect, they call it, other than, other than the intended effect, that for some reason falls in line with the amount of uh, cholesterol it's lowering. Maybe it's something, it, the amount of cholesterol lowering is just a, 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 a surrogate marker, whatever, an estimated marker for whatever else they're doing in the body. Interesting. Okay. So then we get these other drugs. One's called uh, azetamide, and that's actually one of these drugs. It's a neiman pick c C1-like protein inhibitor. Long, long, uh, crazy name, but what it does is actually inhibits through, um, it, it blocks the absorption of any uh, of sterols that are in your intestine. Now, you may say, you know, I talked about the dietary cholesterol being absorbed and, and whatever else and being packaged in your intestine to those chylomicrons and so forth. But there's also uh, sterol in our bile that it also decreases the reabsorption of. And that's where, you know, Dr. Dayspring and some of these other people like try to make sure everybody understands that mechanism because it, even in those who are like a vegan who don't even eat, diet, have any dietary cholesterol, it will reduce uh, their LDL cholesterol. And the way it does that is through similar to the statins, <clears throat> Because you're not you're not you're not absorbing any more of that um, 
uh, cholesterol from the bile or anywhere else, your liver upregulates that recycling of LDL cholesterol in the blood. Okay, so then we go, all right, so do those reduce events? Yeah, well, it turns out that kind of falls in the same line. It's not like, you know, these things only reduce, you know, your LDL cholesterol by, you know, 15. If you add it with like a 15%, if you add it with a statin, you can get up to 20 or so percent. But even you look in the line of where we start reducing uh, cholesterol from statins, it falls in that same same line. It's like, hey, it's kind of where we'd predict it would be based on risk reduction, placebo-controlled uh, tr- trial. Okay, so there's another drug besides statins that has nothing to do with inf- inflammation uh, that we can tell anyway, works through a completely different mechanism. But in the end, it does increase this liver upregulation of LDL receptors, which increases the recycling of the LDL in the blood, which lowers the LDL cholesterol and APOB-containing lipoproteins, specifically LDL particles in the blood, and reduces cardiovascular events. Okay, great. Okay, maybe there is something about this Neiman-Pixie one, like protein inhibitor. Maybe it does have inflammatory things. Okay, so that's another drug that has pleiotropic effects like statins? Probably not, but okay, I'm listening. We have another, these other drugs called PCSK9 inhibitors, and PCSK9 is one of these things that um, it's a protein that it actually downregulates your, your ability to recycle LDL receptors, uh, which means that there's going to be more LDL particles in the blood. So we can actually inhibit this thing that breaks down the LDL Receptors, it means there's going to be more LDL receptors, which means more recycling of the LDL particles, which means lower blood levels of LDL particles. These things are powerful. They're injections right now, but they've already got pills. We've, we've, got, we've got other things. They're, they're, they're about to do trials or they're doing trials right now on editing people's genes. I mean, just, just crazy. I mean, the, the biologics on this. Anyway, the studies we have right now looking at the events Wow, those also reduce events. So we have we have multiple different drugs right now in a randomized controlled trial that reduce uh, events that have nothing to do with uh, seemingly nothing to do with in- inflammation. And it falls right in that same prediction level of where we'd figure people would have reduced cardiovascular events. When you say events, can you just clarify what that means? Yeah. So this is actually it's a point of contention by some people, but uh, let's say unstable anginods or chest pains um, um, due to cardiovascular disease where it's unstable, uh, myocardial infarctions, that type of thing. Some people hope that they define it, uh, each of them a little bit more clearly because when you start piling all these events in, and the reason they do that is because it gives these studies a little bit more power because like, you know, if you only look at one primary outcome of like myocardial infarction and you miss some of these other little things, it, it might not have had enough events to, to show any difference. And so that, that's a point of contention. But when you use a similar definition, it seems to reduce all these types of events that they've defined in the past. So then the next line of evidence, and I could have put this line of evidence before the RCTs, but I think these are all. So you got epidemiology, you got RCTs, which are probably the best. But the next one that is so powerful, we, we have genetics. And this is the thing that actually put me over the edge because we, this is before Zetia had outcome data. It's before PCSK9 data. And I was on the edge of like the, these skeptics did a really good job. They've written multiple books on 
on why like LDL cholesterol isn't atherosclerotic and, and causal. And they, they make a good case, except now when all this data comes out, it's like, how are you going to, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they are. I mean, they still do argue against it. And it's like, man, you guys are starting to look a little bit crazy now, but here's the deal. So when they start looking at genetics and there is there are multiple things that can change from a genetic level in the metabolism of your lipids that can change how uh, your LDL cholesterol or ApoB containing particles will be. There's things that can increase the levels and there's things that can decrease the levels. And a lot of them are actually the same as, as how these drugs work. So statins work by this HMG-CoA reductase and you can actually look at genetic levels in populations, looking at those who have less versus more and see, see slight differences in, in how people will do uh, over time. There's also the NPC one like one protein, the, the Zetia blocks. There's people that have more of that versus less of that. And you can look at the lipid changes and see how they do over time. The PCSK9, that's a big one where you can look at people that have loss of function. Those people that have uh, less PCSK9, just similar to how the inhibitors work. Those people don't get uh, atherosclerosis. The people that have gain of function or more of it. They tend to have more atherosclerosis uh, over time. And then there's a bunch of other things. There's, there's something called an ABCG5 and 8. That's, it's, a, it's a little transporter after that NPC1 like one that's in the intestine. Either way, all, a lot of different things that, um, that can change your blood levels of ApoB or LDL particles and cholesterol. And it looks like tends to be those who have more, just from genetic levels, tend to have more atherosclerosis. And those who have less tend to have less atherosclerosis. And now, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to this, but they'll still argue that like, hey, though, like these are in big populations. Have they ever taken these and looked at those who are healthy, like very healthy? And it's always keto. It's, it's, it's keto. It's never anything else. But it's always, what if, these people weren't following a ketogenic diet. So it's pretty powerful data to go like, hey, in general, in the general population, this tends to go like this, and this tends to go like that, depending on how much uh, ApoB or LDL particles you have. One of the, the really interesting things that I find about that research is that uh, it really highlights the importance of lowering LDL cholesterol or ApoB-containing lipoproteins as early in life as possible when you look at the magnitude of risk reduction from those genetic studies versus the randomized controlled trials, which I think people often overlook are subjects that had a, a potentially decades with an elevated level before going on the drugs. Yeah. So here's, here's some of the stuff of these epidemiology studies. So they'll go, they'll, they'll take a, a group of individuals, 60 to 80 years old or whatever it is, and they'll go, look, these people with like very low levels of cholesterol, they seem to die early. These people with like, you know, moderately high, these people seem to live very long. There were a lot of people that died or had major massive heart attacks way earlier and we missed them all. They're all dead. So these people that <laughs> they're all dead, they're just morbidly. This is everybody's dead. But but really when you start capturing these people right at the 60 to 80, there, there's something that people don't talk about, and I think this needs to be talked about. There are people with a resiliency to atherosclerosis, and 
So I've gotten in these arguments. People are like, my LDL cholesterol is 500 milligrams per deciliter. I mean, massively high. And I've had it for a year, and my coronary artery calcium score is zero. Sounds like Paul Saladino. Well, yeah, I wasn't going to name names, but that's him. <laughs> and he goes, I've had other patients that have done that, and their, their CAC score is zero. LDL has nothing to do with atherosclerosis. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, by that logic, I've had patients with, who smoke, who have type 2 diabetes, who have all sorts of other things that they would say is causal, do also have zero coronary artery calcium score. There's certain individuals that have resiliency. So you have to look at you have to look at massive numbers, population numbers. I don't know. We can't totally predict. We're, they're getting better with certain genetics to find out who. But I think these um, arguments are silly. On that topic of, of coronary artery calcium score, and then we'll, we'll come back to the kind of conversation. I'm also wondering how insightful that score is in the first few years, say, after changing your diet and jacking up your cholesterol levels, have, have you allowed a long enough period to actually pick up calcification, particularly if you're, say, 30 or 40 years old? No, no. In fact, and that's why I'm part of this study where we're looking at the development and progression of atherosclerosis. And we will not be using coronary artery calcium as a, a marker for progression because it, 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 it first of all, getting a, a, a zero coronary artery calcium score is a great negative predictive value. The person that has a 500 LDL cholesterol after a year of keto, they're not going to drop that anytime soon. It does take time. How much time in that individual? I can't say because there are kids who have what's called the familial hypercholesterolemia who will have LDL receptor uh, mutations to where, you know how I talked about the, the liver is so important for recycling these LDL cholesterol particles, these LDL particles and ABOB containing particles. Well, in these kids, you know, actually, they develop rapid, massive atherosclerosis when they have two of their genes knocked down. They have like these 500 to 600 milligrams per deciliter levels. So, but anyway, in these people with diet-induced hypercholesterolemia up to, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500, I've seen some people up to 700 somehow. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I, I don't, you're not going to see calcium. You're going to see this soft plaque that's built up that, the, that these calcium scores just won't find. So you have to actually inject dye and do an angiography, uh, which is what we're going to be doing just to see it. So yeah, if somebody's had the same lifestyle for their whole life and doesn't really change it much and they check their levels at age 40 or 50 and it's zero, that's very good prognosis. But when somebody makes a change and then says after a year it's only zero, it's kind of it's 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 not meaningless but it's almost meaningless. It's it's pretty meaningless. It may well be more reflective of the way they had been living. Yeah, which is fine. And, and yeah, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to drop dead, but I, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't use that as, as a proof of anything. I guess at this point, I just want to, to make something clear from what you're saying, there are these various lines of evidence, genetic, uh, epidemiology, randomized controlled trials, and the findings are all converging, pointing in this direction of it is best practice, healthier in terms of cardiovascular disease outcomes to lower your ApoB containing lipoproteins to a healthy level for as long as possible. And I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to really 
emphasize something here. Is that what you would say is the accepted science by the majority of cardiologists, lipid researchers, physicians, et cetera? Yes. It's not, it's not even, it's not even close. It's not even close at this point. It's, it's a consensus that doesn't now, you know, some people are like consensus doesn't mean anything. No, that's what everybody at least thinks. I mean, the, the data's pretty strong. And I will say also, again, having high levels doesn't guarantee 100% in high levels, it, you know, what is high levels anyway? We have, you can go super high versus just kind of moderately high and all these different things. But let's say just having even pretty high levels, let's say in the FH familial hypercholesterolemia range of 200, 300, 400, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a heart attack. But it, compared to someone that doesn't have it, multiple lines of, of evidence say you're much more likely and this is, I would say, because of certain resiliencies in, in genetics of, of how people develop atherosclerosis. So if it is so settled, I'm interested in your perspective here and in terms of what you think is driving the cholesterol denial within a certain sort of community, particularly online. Is it, is it that people are looking for some sort of explanation to support their dietary changes because they have experienced significant health improvements in terms of weight loss, for example, and blood glucose control. And so a lot of things have have seemingly moved in the right direction. And then there's this one biomarker that they can't explain. And it's it's easier to just pretend that it's it's not associating with cardiovascular disease in all cases. You hit it on the head. That's exactly it. There's, so here's what you basically said. Low carb, high fat, ketogenic diets, whatever. It doesn't have to be ketogenic. It's just low carb, higher fat. Higher saturated fat specifically, lower polyunsaturated fat. Diets, high in animal protein and cholesterol, low soluble fiber, that type of thing. On a population level, will increase LDL cholesterol. On a population, some actually have decreases, which is interesting. On a population level, slight increases, and some will have massive, just massive increases. And we can talk about that in a second. But massive improvements, though, blood glucose, body composition, pretty much anything other than LDL cholesterol, massive improvements in inflammatory markers. Once they've reduced their, their waist circumference and their visceral fat, they're feeling better, but they just have a slightly higher LDL cholesterol. How could that be deleterious or harmful or anything like that. Well, you know, so I think what these people then go is like, it does, it's, 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 actually, it's so unscientific to me, but it's just going, well, that doesn't matter then. No, I don't think I would say that. I would say, hey, why don't we just look at the risks and benefits of it all if this is the only lifestyle you can tolerate and for some reason you refuse to change, you know, some of the parts of your low-carb diet to a more... I'd say plant-based um, version, and your LDL cholesterol is a little bit elevated, but everything else is improved, then let's just look at you as an individual and kind of focus on whether we do need to reduce it. You can use medicines if need to, or just monitor. So I think to me, it's, 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 it's totally just going like, I like this. This seems like a good diet. I've made sarcastic tweets about this so many times. I just got one that popped up from five years ago that was like, I love low-carb diets, but LDL goes up. Therefore, LDL doesn't matter. That's, that's the logic. 
And to me, I think it's, it doesn't, it just doesn't even make any sense. It's not that it doesn't matter, but maybe it's, maybe that the more scientific wording should be or thinking should be, well, maybe it's not as harmful. Maybe there's, maybe because of all this, there's some increased resiliency, as I said, from other, you know, how there is a resiliency in some individuals. Maybe there is a, it creates a, a resiliency uh, in some individual. I, I don't know though. We, we don't know. And that's kind of what I'm trying to study. When I look at this, I can really empathize with someone in that position in that they've improved their overall health and they're just feeling better, right? And of course, they they think back and, and, and don't want to go back to their previous diet. That That's probably not an option and, and totally understandable. What seems to confuse me is that there seems to be some uh, emotions and, and ideology attached to a few of these ideas around shifting that high-fat, uh, low-carb diet to a more plant-based version. And when I refer to sort of ideology, I'm speaking to this idea that polyunsaturated fats, particularly, you know, lead to oxidation and and um, there's a lot of fear in this group. It seems about polyunsaturated fats, despite the evidence showing, you know, swapping saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat has favorable effects on blood lipids and outcomes. Yeah, I, I, it's just, it's the same thing. So trying to come up with every single reason not to do that. It doesn't, it, do, it, it honestly doesn't make any sense. So it's like, okay, okay, my LDL cholesterol went up. I like animals. I like butter. I like coconut oil. I'm feeling pretty good on this diet, but my LDL cholesterol went up. So like, why did it go up? Oh, because of XYZ, fewer polyunsaturated fat, more saturated fat. Well, saturated fat, they can't be, they can't be bad for you because I'm feeling better. So let's find every little thing. Yes, it's true that polyunsaturated fats compared to saturated fatty acids are more readily oxidized. I mean, from a bio, I mean, just biochemistry. But who cares about the mechanism? Does it actually change outcomes? No, we've, we've had tons of data. I mean, you've posted about it on Twitter multiple times. Um, we have tons of data to show that that's, that's not actually what happens. Um, honestly, I, I, you know, these RCTs that they've done in the past, they're, at this point, I think they're kind of garbage. They, they did them in hospitals and all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, and some of these and some of these polyunsaturated fats, you know, there's question of whether there's a lot of trans fat included. And for those listening, trans fats versus cis uh, fatty acids, it's, it, it depends on how the bio uh, the, the structure of, of the double bonds of these things. So saturated fatty acids don't have a double bond. Monounsaturated fats have one double bond in, in the structure and then polyunsaturated have multiple. And then based on those double bonds, you can have trans or cis and all these different things uh, just to let people know. So when you have a double bond, it can become oxidized. Whereas saturated fat, it, it can't be. So what they think though, and this is this goes back to the pathogenesis or pathophysiology of atherosclerosis. The, the idea was that ApoB containing particles, specifically LDL particles, cannot cause atherosclerosis if they cannot become oxidized. And so if you don't have any polyunsaturated fats within this ApoB-containing particle, specifically LDL particles, it's not going to become oxidized. It, it doesn't matter. It won't cause atherosclerosis. Can we just pause one, one second on that? Can you just define what you mean by oxidized in case it's the first time someone's hearing that or perhaps has never had it explained? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you think about like, 
rust on a on, on metal or, or anything else like that. It's a biochemical uh, reaction. Uh, that's let's see, loss of electrons is oxidation. Leo says Ger. Gain of electrons is reduction. So it's a it's a <laughs> it's a biochemical reaction. Um, you had a, a, a change. It's a change in electron configuration, and because of this. The, the immune system, they thought that once that becomes retained and oxidized, the immune system sees it as foreign and goes, gobbles, gobbles it up. Micro, the monocytes turn the macrophages, come in, gobble it up. And there's cholesterol in there. Um, uh, and you start forming the foam cells, fatty streaks, and then more and more starts building up through this whole um, atherosclerotic cascade. So what we find out is that it doesn't these these particles don't maybe don't need to be oxidized in order to start causing this atherosclerosis. There's other ways these particles can be modified as well. It doesn't have to be oxidation. And honestly, like that whole that whole thing. There's a recent paper by Peter Libby, really good paper of atherosclerosis. It was just written a few months ago, but basically questioning this idea of particles needing to be oxidized. And the other thing is, is like when these particles are in the blood, they aren't readily oxidized anyway. Uh, so this, this whole polyunsaturated fat increases oxidation of particles, which then increases atherosclerosis, which means LDL doesn't matter if you're not eating polyunsaturated. It's just, it's just nonsense. And so we can eat. And, and who cares? These mechanisms are interesting to kind of find the underlying causes of whatever. But we can just look at like those who eat more polyunsaturated fat and have more in the blood. Do they have more heart disease and more cardiovascular events? And it turns out that's not true. We've done RCTs. Again, I wish they would do these. I hope they do them again in the future because I think that would be interesting. But they've combined all that data. You can look at the most recent Cochrane analysis. And it seems to be fewer events when eating, when swapping out saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat. But Again, I, I hope they actually do this. This stuff again would be kind of interesting, but um, they probably won't. Which, from a practical sense, is in terms of you know making shifts to this low carb, high fat diet. We're talking about less red meat and butter, and more fish and nuts and seeds. Yeah, I mean that's the gist of it. If you if you like, I, you know, I eat meat. Um, I try to keep it lean. The dietary cholesterol will play a small component, but it's more of the saturated fat. And I would say it's it's really these high amounts of saturated fat, from like palmitic acid, myristic acid from coconut oil and that type of thing. And then you just add on top of that lots of dietary cholesterol, fewer amounts of soluble fiber, and you're really setting yourself up for uh, high LDL cholesterol um, from diet. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of lentils. I want to I want to circle back to that at the end when we we give some sort of takeaway tips to to folks. But while we're just talking about sort of cholesterol denial, if you will, I think some of this is is certainly made easier with the likes of Dr. Asim Maholtra and his position and he's, you know, very adamant that lipid lowering drugs are not beneficial and that low LDL cholesterol could actually be harmful when considering things like cancer and, and, and all cause mortality. Why do you think that someone like him, a UK physician, is on TV all the time? Why do you think he is so adamant despite all of this evidence that you've put forward? 
Yeah, it's, it's hard to know um, his intentions. Maybe he truly believes it. I don't know. The thing is, once you gain a following and your whole mantra is a certain type of dietary pattern and you sell lots of books, and I mean, why wouldn't you turn the other way? I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like I don't make any money from lowering or raising cholesterol like i just want i want people to i make i make money from trying to help people get better despite whatever the evidence is and so i you know i don't know if it's fame fortune everything else i'm, I'm not i have no idea maybe he truly believes it there are a lot of these people though um and you can you can manipulate the data all you want so like for example some of this epidemiological data uh, they show people that have lower levels of LDL cholesterol seem to die earlier. Well, that's interesting. Well, it turns out cancer and other malnourished states also lower LDL cholesterol. So were they dying from the cholesterol? No, it's a big confounder. It's reverse causation. These other things are lowering the cholesterol, but it's these other things that are killing the people. And that's why these randomized controlled trials are so important. And the genetic data is so important. It, it removes a lot of these, what we call confounders, these things that could be in between finding out what's causing the actual issue. Yeah, so I don't know why these people do it. I mean, I, honestly, I mean, whether it's money, fame, I have no idea. If I was listening and I didn't want to hear what you had to say, I would, I would probably ask you which statin company is paying you. Yeah, I know. Well, the cool <laughs> thing is the statins are all generic now, pretty much, except for uh, patavastatin. Okay, P um, PCSK9 inhibitors. Yeah, oh, yeah, they're definitely <laughs> in my pocket. I, I wish, you know, I, uh, I, bought, I bought stock in this company called Verve. It's not much. I bought like, whatever, 500 bucks worth because they're the ones that are editing uh, people's genes. I don't know if it's going to work out. I saw the stock just drop the other day. I'm like, whatever. I don't need it. It was like, I had some money in this like Robin hood fund that I was like, okay, I don't know where else to put this. I'll, I'll, I'll support their cause. But, um, yeah, I, I, I there's, there's, there are going to be more and more, uh, drugs that are coming out that are really interesting. The thing is I'm a, I'm a lifestyle medicine zealot. I would ideally not have to give people medicines if possible, uh, I would like to do that, but it's not always possible. Okay, so I want to change gears slightly here and, and talk about uh, the work that Dave Feldman's doing and this concept of lean mass hyper responders, which I'll get you to define and, and then that will help us kind of walk through to the study that's being conducted and the intentions of the study and, and uh, you know, what you and Dave and others are, are hoping to achieve. Yeah. So this is a, a guy. So first of all, in 20, 2011, I started seeing this in my clinic. People didn't actually believe me. I was like, these people are doing ketogenic. I was a lowly little intern just right after medical school. I'm like, hey, this guy's got a cholesterol, LDL of 300. And he was normal just like a month ago. And people were like, that, that didn't happen. Uh, Low-carb diets don't actually increase uh, ApoB or, or LDL. Look, at here's the studies, um, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, this is happening. Nobody actually believed me at the time. And I was <laughs> tweeting and making Facebook posts about it. Fast forward a few years, Dave Feldman, an engineer, saw the same thing happen in him. And he is... I, 
I've done lots of N of, N of one type of studies and myself kind of going, okay, I'm controlling for this. And I'm going to watch this and what, see what happens. But he, this guy takes it to uh, multiple, multiple exponential levels than I would ever even think about. So he goes, he's an engineer. He thinks about energy systems, systems, and how these, these things work. And so he did lots and lots of very, I would say rigorous. People give him crap, but he, they're rigorous N of one. N of one meaning he was the only subject and he was trying to figure out what was going on in his body. He could see that he could find out that he could manipulate his um, lipid LDL cholesterol levels by switching, swapping out carbohydrate and fat very quickly. I mean, within within days. I mean, a day he would see changes as he as he manipulated uh, ratios. And you can see all this stuff at cholesterol code. Now, a lot of people think he's a hack, a hack of some sort, um, and, and a little bit crazy. He's a little bit crazy. He's my, he's my, he's a friend of mine. So I'm allowed to say that, but, um, he came up with this idea because then a lot of these people that I was seeing in the clinic, they all kind of found each other and found Dave and his, and his ideas of this idea of this lipid energy model. And he thinks more so than just the saturated fat and polyunsaturated fat. Now, the, the mechanisms of what I say, I, I personally think it all has to do with this LDL receptor and how polyunsaturated fats upregulate your LDL receptor, like I talked about before, same way the statins can upregulate your LDL receptor, PCSK9 inhibitors, zetamive, all these things upregulate LDL receptor activity. Polyunsaturated fats do the same thing. Saturated fats downregulate your LDL receptor. So I think it's a lot that has to do with that. We have metabolic ward studies that have looked at this um, and have actually done these types of studies. But he feels there's there's more of an effect from from his his energy model, uh, and you can see his site. He has videos on on it exactly. But the 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 gist is is that you go on a ketogenic diet, you lower the amount of glucose coming into your body. You need more fat substrate for energy. So if you don't have as much uh, glucose, you gotta you actually have to eat more fat. You actually have to uh, transport more fat, export more of these VLDL, very low density lipoproteins, out of the liver in order to sustain energy. And if somebody's very active, lean, this type of thing, uh, they're going to have more of this more of these particles flowing out. So remember, when you export this VLDL out of the liver. It has triglycerides and cholesterol on it, and it goes through to each of your tissues, and they take up some more triglycerides, and it then gets broken down into IDLs and eventually LDLs, LDL uh, particles. So if people are on a ketogenic diet, he, he feels like you're exporting more and more of these VLDLs. It's going to eventually get broken down and uh, quickly into these LDL particles, and this is why these people have lots of LDL uh, particles and cholesterol, and that's part of it. And that's the gist. Now, I think there might be something. There might be something, obviously, to that. But what I think is that I've seen people who are relatively lean and active who go on a plant-based, lower-carb, ketogenic diet and don't really have this pronounced effect. But I think if you have ex more, more exportation of these VLDLs and, and in normal healthy people that are on polyunsaturated fat types of diets, you have that upregulation of the LDL receptor to take care of all those LDL particles. It doesn't, it's not going to affect them. But when you just add in a little bit of that component of less polyunsaturated fat, 
more saturated fat, and then a few of these other things I can talk about, like dietary cholesterol and some of these other things, less soluble fiber. And you really downregulate that LDL receptor and you have more exportation of these VLDLs, you're going to be left with a massive amount of LDL particles. Um, so I think there might, he, you know, he has, a, he, has, he has a point there, but I don't think it's the major component. And then I think on top of that, we're going to see certain individuals that have it more due to some of these genetic aberrations that have to do with the LDL receptor or, or is somewhere in the lipid metabolism that basically backs up the whole system. And I don't think the major effect is this lipid energy model. Again, I, it, this is going to be easily, not easily, but we can test this and I think we'll, we'll eventually do that. But personally, I think these people with explosive levels of LDL cholesterol, it's, it's not necessarily this, this energy model. There may be a component of that. I think it's that plus all these other things make a massive explosion of LDL particles in the body due to the downregulation of LDL receptors. Uh, and there's a major backup. That's what I think happens. Before we get into the study, I, I just want to try and make sure that I'm hearing this correctly. And I'm also mindful not to sort of misrepresent Dave's position. So correct me if, if I'm wrong here, but essentially, despite all of the evidence that you've walked us through, Dave's hypothesis is that within a particular context, it's possible that ApoB-containing lipoproteins are not atherogenic. So I guess said simply, in a particular subset of people adopting this low-carb ketogenic diet that is rich in saturated fats who experience this very large increase in ApoB following that dietary change, they would not experience atherosclerosis at the rate that we would otherwise predict because his hypothesis is that these ApoB-containing lipoproteins are not inherently atherogenic, but it's more so what causes the elevation. Yeah, that, that's that's essentially my understanding of where he's coming from too. I mean, again, you know, he and I are working together on this study. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's a good thing. We just we we agree on the this the way it should be studied but we don't agree on the mechanism. And that's why we kind of want to see what's going on here. Uh, under every line of evidence, yeah, we should see an increased risk to, compared to somebody that does not have those elevations. There's lots of confounding though, because like, you know, why would somebody who's, whoever's doing a ketogenic diet who doesn't have these massive increases in LDL cholesterol, um, they're not going to be following the same type of diet. And if they do have differences in the changes in their LDL cholesterol, it either has to do with, it probably has more to do with genetics then uh, as well. And then again, it can be overall metabolic status. So what, what people will say is that if somebody does a ketogenic diet, high saturated fat one, and has more of the insulin resistance, they're not going to have this huge increase in LDL cholesterol compared to somebody who's very lean, metabolically uh, healthy, super active, like a triathlete or something uh, like that, or a marathon runner who needs to use tons of energy. Uh, so we compare that to somebody who has like insulin resistance. But anyway, that's, that's his thinking is that for some reason, it's not as atherogenic. I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure why, but... Do you think that's wishful thinking or do you see any validity to the idea? Yeah, so here's, here's what I'm going to say. He says cautiously optimistic. I would say cautiously pessimistic. I do think 
that there could be a difference in the resiliency that I was talking about before. Nothing to do with the ApoB necessarily. There may be some differences in, in the structure of it, you know, from the, I don't, it doesn't totally make a, a lot of sense from the structure of it, but I think more of this resiliency. I think if anything, there may be a difference in how our immune system reacts to when the ApoB containing lipoprotein gets beyond that endothelium and how well it's retained, how our immune system reacts, macrophages go and gobbling it up, that type of thing. I think if anything, there may be a difference there. And we can there is some evidence to show that those with familial hypercholesterolemia have higher rates. So just for those who are listening, I talked about the different genetic differences in, in, in how you can have differences in your LDL cholesterol. There's something called familial hypercholesterolemia, and these look at these major defects in cholesterol uh, transport. The big one is an LDL receptor defect or mutation. And if you have a receptor, if you have something in your LDL receptor mutation, like if you have defunct LDL receptors, that's where your cholesterol starts building up a lot. There's another one. Uh, you can have changes in your ApoB mutations, how you make the ApoB. They don't fit in the LDL receptor as well, so they get they start building up more in your blood. That's the second one. There's a LDL receptor-related protein. It's another way to recycle um, your LDL cholesterol or LDL particles. And then there's that PCSK9. And if people have loss of uh, or gain of function of that or mutations in that, where you have more PCSK9, you can have massive in increases. So that's when I say familial hypercholesterolemia. It's one of those big four. The, the big one that people think about are LDL receptor mutations, though. So getting back to it, there's evidence to show that those who have an LDL receptor mutation, those people with massive increases in their cholesterol, those people actually have higher rates of atherosclerotic events than those people who have similar levels of LDL cholesterol, but without that genetic um, defunct or mutation. So some people think that it's because they've had longer or higher levels throughout life. That's possible. Or it might be something about the genetics that also increases atherosclerosis beyond the cholesterol. And so then you can tease it out even further in something called polygenic hypercholesterolemia. And polygenic gets into some of these other smaller uh, genes in our lipid metabolism beyond those four that I just talked about in familial hypercholesterolemia. So some of that stuff like the HMG-CoA uh, activity, the ABCG5 and 8, and, and some of these other things. So when you tease it out, the, the FH level is big four. They tend to have higher levels. Then you get the polygenic and they, they tend to have fewer events than the, than the, the ones with the, the FH. So other genetic causes still increase. And then you have the people that just tend to have higher cholesterol, and we don't really exactly know why. And then those people have less or fewer atherosclerotic events than any of those two above. So if we're talking about what we call diet-induced hypercholesterolemia, if it's purely diet-induced, not due to any genetics, whether it's a big genetic mutation from FH or polygenic hypercholesterolemia, it's possible that isn't as atherogenic as those genetic causes. What we don't know is if diet-induced then would be more so than just normal, healthy, non-genetic issues with normal levels 
of LDL cholesterol, right? So compared to what? Compared to what? Now the, the problem is how do we even study? Like this is where it starts going. Like, but why would it be? We have all these different. We have RCTs and all these different things. Why would it be any different? Well, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know why it would be. It doesn't make any sense to me. But why don't, let's just kind of look at it because there are these people that refuse treatment. Okay, so with all of that in mind and thinking about a, a study designed to look into this, would it be unethical to do a randomized controlled trial and purposefully uh, assign people to a diet that jacks up their ApoB containing lipoproteins with all of the evidence that we have? Yes, it would be looked at this multiple ways. So the reason randomized trials are so important because it gets rid of these the confounders effects of these observational data that we have. Like what's causing what? You know, so that's what we talked about with people having cancer. They get lower cholesterol. They're going to die early. It doesn't matter what's going on with their cholesterol. Randomized trials get, you know, at least minimize all that stuff. So it's, it's unethical. We don't even do trials with those with familial hypercholesterolemia. We've never done a placebo blind that I know of, I'm pretty sure, uh, trial with, with cholesterol-lowering drugs with them because we know they're at higher risk. We don't even mess around. We just lower their, their lipids, you know, with statins. We don't even mess around anymore. So if, with all the lines of evidence, if you're going to randomize one person to just find ways to jack up their, their ApoB, first of all, I think there's going to be an individual difference. I don't think we're going to be able to jack, jack up everybody's ApoB the, the way you know Dave might think. Dave thinks that if you can go to the gym and find all these lean people, you can put them on a ketogenic diet. doesn't really matter if it's poly or saturated fat uh, ratios or whatever. You're going to, you're going to turn them into a, uh, most of these people into lean mass hyperresponders, which is the concept of super high LDL, pretty high HDL, very low triglyceride levels, and otherwise very lean. Uh, so from a randomized control trial, how would you do it? No, the, no IRB is going to go, yeah, sure, let's, let's purposely increase one group and not another group and see what happens when we have the lines of evidence that we have showing massive increase. Well, not, I'll say increases in atherosclerotic disease. You know, we already have drugs that lower these things. Why would we try to purposely increase it? So then, so then what do you do? Okay, we thought about it. Well, we could take these people that have these massive increases and you can randomize you could randomize some maybe to decrease it. No, I don't know if the if the IRB would allow allow for that too. Okay, so maybe we can just at least take a group and not do a randomized trial. Well, it turns out these people that love doing this type of diet, they don't want to change. They love it. They don't want to they don't want to decrease it. These people that are passionate about it, they feel that the, the benefits outweigh the risks. Can I ask you a question on that? Because I know that there has been some some comments that I've seen online about that. Do you feel in any sort of way, shape or form them being married to this diet and not wanting to change is in any way due to Dave's hypothesis in general and uh Perhaps that's that has contributed and the study to people going against their physician's advice to change their diet. Yeah, I would say this. I would say there's so many of these people. It doesn't matter if Dave weren't around. He just made a group for people to meet up and, and get there. I, I think 
you know, with the Malcolm Kendricks and you got these other LDL scripts, these people were, I was reading all their books when I was in medical school, um, 10, over 10 years ago, I was reading these things and they made some good cases. So I, I think these people would exist regardless of Dave. He kind of came up with this lipid energy model and he, you know, he throws these hypotheses out there. Maybe it's not as bad. Maybe it's not. I think, I, I think he's much more benign than what other people give him. I would say that him, you know, I've seen the words coercing and all these types of things. I don't think so. I think these people, are, these people are pretty adamant, regardless of Dave. I mean, like some of these people that I know that have, that do this, they've never even heard of Dave. They just think that cholesterol. It's it's in it's, it's a lot of these LDL skeptics. So, yeah, I've gone I've gone into his group and I've 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 written an article. Uh, for his blog that states exactly what we kind of talked about here, the lines of evidence, why I don't think it's a good idea. And I would go in and kind of discuss with these people in this group and they, they just don't care. Some of these people are new to the group and they see the, they see uh, my article and they go, yeah, I think it's reason enough. But a lot of these people, they've seen multiple doctors, they fired them before they even knew who Dave Feldman was and that type of thing. So, so they're kind of prepared to take a risk, if there is a risk, based on the overall benefits that they've experienced. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I would never do it. When my LDL, so recently my LDL levels have increased for whatever reason. I'm not really sure. I think it might have been the tacos I was eating. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I actually, but I actually take a Zetamide. I was doing, uh, I have some resuvastatin too. Like I don't mess around. And, uh, like we said, from all the data we have, the longer and higher your ApoB, I'm not messing around. But I'm also very car like cardiometabolically healthy. My insulin levels are very low. My glucose levels are great. Triglycerides are low. Barely detectable. Uh, uh, high sensitivity CRP. All these different things. All biomarkers are low. But you know, even when I see my LDL get into the you know 120s, 130s, I'm like, mm, no, I don't want that. Here's what I'll say. The other thing I'll say, it used to drive me crazy. And I, I used to argue with all these people. So I understand what other people are, are, are saying. I personally think there's going to be a lot of these people that are just never going to change their mind. And I think instead of trying to push back, which has not, has thus far not worked. I think let's just look at what is going on in their arteries. These people are well informed. I mean, like, I think it's personally, I think it's crazy. You know, like, what are you going to do? You, you care. You don't care that your LDL cholesterol is 400, 500, 600. These are crazy levels, just crazy levels where you see in, in FH familial hypercholesterolemia. And they're like, Nope, I don't think it's, I don't think it's related. I fired my doctor three times, four times. They, they won't even go see doctors because they don't want to hear it. They, they've seen it. They've seen everything and they just, they don't believe it. So what are you going to do? Well, I think it's unethical to not watch what's going on in their art. I think it's unethical to not monitor them at least. And we should do it in this, in a way that's at least not these little anecdotes. So here's the problem with there's something called survivorship bias. There's all these people following this type of diet. These people are saying they're feeling great. You know, you're on these forums and whatever. Well, whatever happened to Bob? He doesn't post anymore. The bastard dropped dead, you know, type of thing. But we don't know that. He's just gone. We don't know. We didn't know Bob. He was just in the forum once in a while talking or whatever. You may not have even noticed. So then you get the survivorship bias, this whole resiliency. These people that are, the longer we wait, we're going to have more and more of these people that <laughs> drop down because they're dead or have 
heart attacks. At least that's what I would expect. And you have, I mean, we're laughing, but it's like, it's true. And you hear some of these, you hear some of these stories, but it's not really talked about. So let's take these people in a cohort style. I want to do a registry, quite honestly. I want to get everybody that's following this. And, and the longer they follow it, I want to start the clock. I want to get them all um, these CTAs, so the angiography with the injectine. We can actually look at the soft plaque and all these little things, the vasculature, so much better than a coronary artery calcium by itself. And then, you know, just check in with them yearly or whatever it is. See how they're doing. Are your LDL cholesterol? Are you still doing ketogenic diet? Yeah. Are you still doing? Is your cholesterol still? Yeah, it's super high. What's going on? You've been in the hospital, that type of thing. I want to do a registry. But right now we had to settle for, well, not settle for, this is another way of looking at it, of, of, of we're, still in, we're still getting people in, but uh, we're, we're getting people in to have these massive changes in their cholesterol. I don't call them lean mass hyperresponders. I call it diet-induced severe hypercholesterolemia. Why don't you like lean mass hyperresponder? Because it's, it's, uh, it's not poorly defined. Dave defines it on his website. He's got these parameters. The, the, the problem is, is that... I'm not convinced of the mechanism behind it. We do know that it's diet-induced. We know from a dietary standpoint, it was their diet. So the way, the way I designed this thing is that we got to make sure that we're not getting these familial hypercholesterolemia people. So there's a lot of lipidologists, cardiologists who, who see these 500 milligrams per deciliter. If you look at something called the Dutch scoring system, the, the FH scoring system, Dutch lipid score, People with a 500 milligrams per deciliter coming in, they're like, they're pretty much automatically, that person has FH, treat them like FH. Oh, if you actually looked a few months ago, they had 100 or 120 milligrams per deciliter cholesterol when they are before they're ketogenic. They don't have FH. So the way I designed this, uh, and, you know, I worked with Dave and I worked with this guy named Tommy Woods, and we're actually working with the Lundquist Institute with Matt Rudolph, who is... I think probably the most renowned uh, CTA expert uh, researcher cardiologist out there. And so I, I, would, I would call myself probably one of the, you know, like, I, I'm an expert in this diet-induced hypercholesterolemia in terms of like from a clinical matter. I see it all the time. I've been seeing it since I was an intern when nobody believed me. I'm thinking about this a lot. So, but I needed the cardiology expert who looks at the actual arteries and I knew there was a way to do it. And he said, you could see changes when you do most of these CTA studies. You can see changes in a year. And I was like, really? Atherosclerosis takes a long time. Are you sure? And he's like, yes, these, these, the way the imaging is so sensitive, you can see changes in plaque volume very clearly. But you need to have enough people in it. So, um, yeah, so we were recruiting people that have uh, an elevation in their LDL cholesterol from diet. They had to prove that their um, lipid levels were population normal, by the way. And I did this actually according to the, uh, with the Dutch lipid system. I did it to where like it's very unlikely they have a genetic uh, difference. So we can recruit them and then watch them for a year. How long do they have to have been doing the diet for? We decided two years. We wanted people committed. We wanted people that were committed to this thing, that weren't just doing it on a whim, that were going to be quitting in the middle of the because it's expensive to do this, you know, relatively expensive. So we wanted to come in. We were going to do like a year. I'm like, no, let's try to get two years. So um, two years, I think that's what we settled on. We were thinking about a year and a half, but I think I think we settled on two years. They had to have an increase in, in um, levels by 50%, but they have to go over that 200 
190, in a, when we talk about phenotypes for uh, um, familial hypercholesterolemia, 190 is the number. 190 milligrams per deciliter of LDL cholesterol is where you say that's a phenotype for possible familial hypercholesterolemia. So we want these people going from under like 160 LDL cholesterol. They have to have a jump of at least 50% and they have to get at least over, I think we picked 200 actually. And their triglycerides have to be below, I think we picked 100 or, or maybe 80, something around there. And their HDL have to, have to be relatively high. We didn't pick the parameters you put on this website, but it, like above 60 or something like that. Everything else normal, blood pressure, CRP levels, glucose, and we're monitoring ketones, all these different things. And um, No history of cardiovascular disease. No history. Now, the other thing is when they come in and get a you know CT angiography, you know, if they have massive cardiac, we have, we have the parameters too. You know, if they have looked like obstructive disease when they do these angiography, we're not letting them, that, that would be unethical as well. Cause I'd be like, man, I wouldn't feel sorry. Will that be published in the, in the results or made available? That kind of data? Yeah. So we want this thing to be about as uh, trans. We want to be as transparent as, as possible. Um, and that was actually, you know, it's one of these things that was a little bit of a, trying to make sure that we we don't want to give patient um, HIPAA violations where you uh, identifiable markers of to know like, oh, that was that person. You can see this and this and whatever else. But the, the numbers we want it to be as, as transparent as possible and where everybody can download it. It won't, it won't be, I don't think it'll be available right away, but there will be a chance. Everybody can look at everything. But, you know, the, the idea was getting this diet-induced severe hypercholesterolemia with everything else normal because that's what we're seeing clinically uh, in these individuals who are saying that, no, this is safe. And I don't know how it could be safe, but we're going to watch them for a year and see the progression or plaque volume change in their arteries. Now, one of the other issues is this. I'm kind of learning about the CTA. You have to have a little bit of plaque in your arteries at first. Because if you don't have any plaque in there, the, you'd have to then develop a little bit of plaque. To me personally, I would want to see the development of plaque too, but that takes a little bit longer. So in a year span, you can see changes in plaque volume. Here's the issues with the study. It's not an RCT, right? So we start getting into these issues of we don't have a comparison group. That was my question. Who, you know, what's normal progression of atherosclerosis with aging, for example, versus uh, what's pathological? Uh, how are you navigating that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, a lot of these are actually, this is more up uh, Dr. Budoff's um, expertise. But so ideally, we'd have some sort of comparison group that had, they were ketogenic without these LDL cholesterol changes. But again, I think that's probably going to be due to some other genetic differences. And then there's there's multiple confounders there. So then it's like, okay, well, then could we just get normal people that are pretty active that are just doing a mixed diet? Maybe. And I think that's reasonable. Like what's, what's normal population level, like across that similar age group, um, everything else relatively equal, what's the normal progression? And it's going to be, it's probably going to be pretty low, like minimal. The only problem with that is while I, I see that is effective in, in sort of, comparing the progression back to earlier, the motivation of adopting this diet is the benefits that they've seen elsewhere. And if these subjects are going to make any dietary changes, I imagine that's going to be staying within 
within the sort of realm of a low carb diet, but perhaps done in in the other way with more polyunsaturated fats. So it would be good to see that style diet as well. Yeah, and I, I think so. Here's the outcomes we're looking. At. We're like at, looking at plaque volume change in the same group, and people are like, well, if you don't have a comparison group, it's not an RCT. How can you how can you tell anything? Here's what we're looking for. Is there change? And we, you know, our statistician that has done these studies all the time with Dr. Budoff has, we, you know, it's, it's interesting how they look at these, uh, these calculations of we need to have this many people and these assumptions based on past studies of, of the risk of blah, 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 blah. Based on our calculations, we should, within our assumptions, see a difference in plaque. So the real question is if there's a progression in plaque, Compared to what? Well, we at least have data from his higher risk RCTs that they've done where they've given people placebo-blinded drugs or whatever and looked at differences in plaque progression. And so if you look at the placebo groups in these higher risk, we could at least say whether these people are at higher risk like these other individuals. It's going to get tricky though. So I, I would just tell everybody like, look, I think the bigger thing would be like if there's no progression despite having these massive... LDL cholesterol levels. I think that's interesting. I don't think it puts a a nail in the coffin or whatever you want to say about LDL cholesterol. I think it means that we need to study this a little bit further and see what it also, what it means compared to other groups, like you just said. And I think if we do show that, then that could convince an IRB. We could convince to be able to do some of these randomized or, or, or bigger prospective trials. It will, it'll open up, the avenue, but if we if it, if it's a slam dunk, like hey man, these these people have similar progression to like you know those with like type two diabetes and, and other high risk populations that they've already studied with the CTAs, and and Dr. Budoff would be able to get he he mentioned like a fifteen percent or so uh, progression uh, over a course of a year. He mentioned these, some of these numbers, but I I want to get a little bit more granular when we when I talk to him again. But uh, if you start seeing that similar progression, I would just say like. I wouldn't do it. First, I wouldn't do it anyway. I wouldn't do it if it was a zero percent uh, increase. I wouldn't even mess around because I, I, I it, this is going to be a small pilot study. It will open the doors to more studies in the future if it goes a certain way. And I don't know what's going to happen. I assume there's going to be some progression, and this is where we're. And then it will get a little bit muddy. Is it going to be as high as these higher risk people? I don't think it's going to be zero. If it's zero, then I'm just like, man, I don't know what's going on. This is kind of crazy. But I think it might be somewhere in between. And then and then we're going to just have to figure it out. It'll probably be more studies beyond that. I think the registry is going to be a good idea. I don't think, I mean, there are people that are coming after Dave saying he's coercing people. I think if if they offed Dave through social media, like cut him off on Twitter and removed his his group, I, it, it's not going away. Just another person's going to pop up. There's so many of these people on YouTube, and, and you you and I yell at them on Twitter all the time. It doesn't matter. It's not a Dave Feldman thing. It's it's just a skepticism. I mean, there's people that think the COVID vaccine's you know bad and wrong. So like. You know that's not going to go away. We we have major public public health departments, very smart people talking about that all the time. It doesn't matter. You know, not everybody's vaccinated. So I think the same thing. You get rid of a Dave Feldman, there's still going to be these people, and I think we need to study it. And Dave Dave will rightly say there's also people that have epilepsy and some of these other uh, conditions. They just feel better. They have to do this ketogenic diet. Like they don't want to take drugs or whatever. They can't take drugs. 
And I, so I think, I think this is a very important thing. I do think it's an important thing to study, not just for the kind of the crazy or extreme people who drink butter all the time and want to have high cholesterol, but just for some of these other individuals who may not have any other choice. So, um, I, I completely understand that. Uh, but again, I, I still, I don't understand why the hesitancy to adopt it in more of a plant forward fashion until there is strong evidence to suggest that this elevated ApoB in this particular context, despite all of the evidence, just happens to, to not be severely elevating their risk. Yeah, that's what I'm got because I always wonder the same thing. I'm like, uh, I wouldn't do that. Like, and you know, again, my social media is full of like, follow these steps, switch your freaking fat. Like, so someone a carnivore the other day, like his his uh, LDL was like 300. He has ribeye soaked in butter. Okay, well, if you want meat, switch your ribeye to like a sirloin, which is super lean. And then, okay, you're not getting as many calories. You still want fat. Switch all that butter and fat from the steak and have olive oil and nuts, walnuts and almonds or something like that. Why not? Is it a gut GI issue? I, I have no idea. I don't know what, what it is. Maybe it's a taste issue. But like, man, I would not take that chance personally. Okay, so we're, we're coming to the end of this one. One other question I have about the, the study is I couldn't see it registered at clinicaltrials.gov and I, I know a few people have commented about that. Is the, the protocol going to be made public? Yeah, yeah, it, it will be. It's uh, a matter of, um, we, have to, we have to have a, a team discussion. It, it, it's going to be published. It's not, that won't be, I, I, in fact, it, it, yeah, it will be. It just, I don't, I don't know why it hadn't been yet, but um, it's, uh, you know, there's lots of moving parts. We have the, the Lundquist team, who's amazing. Uh, they're out in UCLA. We got Dave in Las Vegas. I'm I'm now on the East Coast instead of San Diego. And we got uh, Tommy up in UW, and we're all like trying to Zoom and COVID times and trying to communicate. But um, it will be, it will be. It's uh, don't worry about that. We're not trying to be secretive. I promise you that. I I think the protocol is good. I know it's not an RCT. I know we don't have a comparison group, but we're going to be looking at whether these people under the assumptions of usual CTA progression of atherosclerosis, whether they have atherosclerosis progression or not. And then we're going to figure it out further from there. So, Okay, great. And when when could we expect the study results to be published, do you think? I would say, so For we're, we've already started scanning people. It's going to be at least a year, I would say two years maybe. I know it sounds like a long time, but it always takes a while. And am I right that... Uh, you're blinded and Dave would be blinded as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what's going on. Even the, even the people at Lundquist, they don't know who's who. When they come in, they just look at the scan. It's 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 really cool. So they're not going to be like, you know, put, what are you putting the foot in the scale or whatever you say? Like, and Dave's like, make sure you don't. No, we, we have no idea. We're going to see these results and it's going to be, it's just going to be super interesting. I'm, I'm like really interested. I think that's important because I think certain people may assume if, if, Dave's behind this study that there's some bias, but it's it's good to know yeah, that I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been involved. Like if if Dave were the one, if Dave were the one in the and there's nothing against Dave, they would have said the same thing about me if I knew who's you know they would say that this guy's going to be starting to like push it one way and Dave, no, so we're all blinded. Even the cardiologists at the at the lung post, nobody knows what's what's going to happen here. So it's kind of cool. 
All right. Well, I think we did it. We uh, covered some pretty good territory there. Perhaps just to close this one out in a sort of instructive manner, and and you've covered quite a few things along the way, but for for someone listening who's just thinking, look, I, I just want some practical takeaway tips from a trustworthy physician like Dr. Spencer Nadolsky to lower my risk of cardiovascular disease. When you sit down with a patient and you have that you know, few minutes to talk diet and lifestyle, what are the key things that you want people to focus on that is supported by the best evidence, lower their risk of having a heart attack, lower their risk of having a stroke, and hopefully increase their chances of living a healthier life for longer? Yeah, we want these people lean and mean, a, a, a low uh, waist circumference, a nice trim waist as much as possible. That also plays a role in all the other things, blood pressure, uh, dyslipidemia, the higher HDL uh, or lower HDL, uh, higher triglycerides, and that means more remnant particles, higher ApoB, and all these types of things. So in order to treat that, we want people to eat mostly, I would say, a satiating whole food plant-based type of diet. I personally uh, like a little bit of a higher protein a moderate to high protein version of that higher fiber diet, whether you want to go lower carb, higher fat versus higher carb, lower fat is up to you. The macronutrient ratios don't matter. The satiety matters the most. And that is in terms of body weight and body composition. So that's mostly that visceral adipose, the, 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 the waist circumference thing I was talking about. Then that will take care of the blood pressure. It'll take care of the blood sugars and that dyslipidemia, the, the lower HDL, higher triglycerides. So then the next component is then just overall ApoB. And this is where the plant-based version of it all gets in. If you want to do high protein, sure. Like I like, if you're going to eat meat, you know, again, people listening to this going, why is this guy even on here? He's eating meat. But if you're going to eat meat, make it lean, lean uh, meat as much as possible. If you're not going to eat, if you want to just be as the, the most optimized risk, you replace all animal-containing uh, proteins and you go more towards the things like the, the mycoproteins that we've talked about on, on Twitter, the corn, the corn, I don't know how you, say, how you pronounce it, but yeah, corn. the mycoprotein, corn. Q-U-O-R-N. But not C-O-R-N. No, no, no. Corn, corn. <laughs> the tofus and that, and that type of thing, the lentils. Um, obviously I, I, you know, actually egg whites, uh, you know, they don't have any dietary cholesterol and no saturated fat. So the, you know, if you want to add that, that's fine as well. You can also do things like whey protein, but again, if you're going completely plant-based, you know, cut that out, uh, soluble fiber, lentils, apples, nuts. These are great, great things. And I didn't talk about this, but this has an effect. It's, it binds some of that cholesterol in the intestine. And so remember, if you're not getting as much absorption of the cholesterol, not only from the bile, but also dietary cholesterol or whatever, but even if you're a vegan or plant-based and you have some more soluble fiber, it can bind up some of that biliary cholesterol, less absorption, liver is going to increase uh, the LDL receptor activity, and it's going to recycle even more. So soluble fiber is also important there. So most of your carbohydrate sources I would get them instead of from sugary, you know, you can drink apple juice if you want, but uh, I wouldn't do that, you know, even if you're plant-based. You get more of the apples, which has a soluble fiber in it, the oats, the lentils, and that type of thing. If you're from a fat standpoint, sure, you could, if you're plant-based, you could have coconut oil, but uh, really these um, tropical oils, they're high in saturated fat. So I would swap it for mostly 
mono and polyunsaturated fat from nuts and seeds uh, and, uh, and olive oil. Avocado oils is okay too. It's more of a monounsaturated fat, which is fine. Uh, won't have as much of an effect on, on the LDL receptors. Polyunsaturated, but I, I personally like it um, just from a taste standpoint. And those types of things, if you're lean and mean, good body composition, low ApoB, good blood pressure, I mean, like, your risk is going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be low. It would be hard to develop atherosclerosis without insulin resistance and with a low ApoB. It's just, it's not going to happen unless you have a genetic issue, of course, as we've talked about. The, the, those, those are the main takeaways. You give a, a mostly a satiating, higher protein uh, diet that helps you stay lean and mean, that also helps lower your ApoB. You're good. That's right. That's all you need. Awesome. And and you're you're a doc that lifts, so I know from an exercise point of view, you're an advocate for exercise, but not just cardio, vascular sort of uh, aerobic exercise, but also re- resistance training. Yeah, combination, a uh, couple different mechanisms, but you know, obviously, as you get older, you know, I talked about before, who cares if you're super old, but you're frail and you can't even move. Staying strong, you're going to decrease your risk of breaking bones and things like that, but also just living a, a good life. And there's also more storage for glucose and nutrient without storing it as fat. So, you know, you have more muscle, you can eat a little bit more. You know, it's not a bad, not a bad option to have. And it looks good, of course, too. Amazing. All right. Thank you, Spencer. We did it. You're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, if folks would like to connect with you, what's the, the best way of doing that? Uh, Instagram's probably the best along with Twitter, but you can do at Dr. Nadolsky, D-R-N-A-D-O-L-S-K-Y. That's on Twitter and on Instagram. I do TikTok, but I don't really interact with people there. And it's Dr. Spencer, at Dr. Spencer. I wouldn't even go there unless you just <laughs> want to see stupid. I, I make stupid ridiculous TikToks, but they're the same as my Instagram reels anyway. So uh, I'm on Facebook as well. And you can go to my site, drspencer.com, D-R-S-P-E-N-C-E-R.com. I think it's great. It's nice to, to keep it light, throw in some humor here and there. Yeah. All right. Thank you, my friend. Let's do this again sometime soon. Thanks. Of course. Of course. There we go. How are you feeling? Good? Me too. There was certainly quite a bit in that one, so why don't we do a little mini recap. The most important take-home points that I'd like you to walk away with are, firstly, in all contexts studied to date, raised LDL cholesterol, and more specifically, ApoB, increases the risk of developing coronary artery disease, and lowering it in all contexts studied to date, lowers risk. Secondly, from a dietary point of view, if you want to lower your ApoB levels, you want to eat less saturated fat, more unsaturated fats, particularly polyunsaturated fats, and more fiber. This means less foods such as red meat, particularly fatty cuts, butter, coconut, and palm oils, and more whole grains, legumes, marine sources of omega-3s, fish or algae, nuts, seeds, avocado, and olive oil, etc. Of course, there are reasons to avoid eating fish, namely environmental and animal welfare, but that's for each individual to navigate. I'm just giving you the food swap recommendations to lower ApoB levels based on the science that we have at our disposal. Lastly, 
While the lean mass hyperresponder hypothesis is interesting, until we know further, I, along with many others, including Dr. Nadolsky, am of the belief that we should be assuming that even in this context, high ApoB is increasing plaque progression and one's risk of ultimately having a heart attack or stroke down the line. That is to say that anyone with raised cholesterol would be better off incorporating the dietary changes that I just went through to reduce the level of ApoB-containing lipoproteins in circulation. This advice is consistent with all of the latest cardiology guidelines, which I'll link in the show notes. All right, hopefully all of that is clear, or at least somewhat clear. And at some point in the future, perhaps when the lean mass hyperresponder initial study results are made available, I will cover this again to ensure that you are kept up to date. Okay, I think we did it. I do have one final note. Following the success of the complimentary two-week meal plan I put out early 2021, I have a new high-protein plant-based recipe ebook. Also totally complimentary, it's being released on my website, plantproof.com, in the next few weeks. Why high-protein? Well, despite some of the rhetoric out there, protein is incredibly important. For athletes pursuing improvements in performance, for anyone wanting to build and maintain strong bones, and for those aged over 50 to prevent muscle wastage, described by the medical community as sarcopenia. Inside the ebook are some of my favorite recipes, including my homemade beetroot pre-workout. It's wonderful, super rich in nitrates, which are great to get the blood flowing. Nut butter protein bars and my mushroom korma which has a lazy 44 grams of protein inside. Of course, when planning these recipes, I considered the full package, plant diversity, protein, healthy sources of fat, healthy sources of unrefined carbohydrates, fiber, micronutrients, etc. If this sounds like a bit of fun to you, something that you might find helpful, please make sure that you are signed up to my newsletter at plantproof.com and I'll email you a copy. You may also want to suggest your friends and family sign up too so that they get a copy as well. I should also add that your data is safe with me. No personal information such as email addresses and names are shared with any third parties. This is something that I am particularly careful about and I will only email you when I have something important to share, a new resource, findings from a new study, a new podcast, etc. All right, let's land this plane. Great job today. We did some fantastic learning. I think so anyway. Thank you so much for hanging out with me all the way to the end here. I appreciate you and your interest in nutrition science and look forward to doing this all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.